So those are the administrative details, and I will now proceed to uh, offer the land acknowledgement. We want to uh, acknowledge that we are here on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the new credit First Nation. We also acknowledge the presence of other indigenous nations who now call this territory home. The Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. For the benefit of those who are connected to the internet, the city clerk has this is Planning Through Land Acknowledgements. This is the last episode for this podcast series that I'll be producing for my master's project. There is so much that I didn't have the time in the first three episodes to talk about, and so much that has come up since even the first episode. One thing that I'm thinking about especially right now, even though it's pretty minor, is that the Faculty of Environmental Studies is now officially called the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. I'm not usually so entranced by this internal university stuff, but I know the merger between environmental studies and geography had a lot of discussion around it. I think that the TRC recommendations, as well as the ways planners can really interrogate their position as they work on indigenous land, are things that sound like they'd be central to the new faculty's focus. The Michelle Daigle article that I mentioned last time is specifically on universities as colonial institutions and what role they can play in decolonization. Work like Daigle's will be incredibly important for universities in the future as they move towards amplifying messages like the need to address climate change and racism. For this episode, I talked to Kim, a community activist and soon-to-be PhD holder from Toronto, who has worked with the Taigon Historic Preservation Centre for over 10 years. Although she's not involved with playing directly, I really appreciated her perspective as someone who has been doing decolonization-oriented organizing for a number of years, and as she'll mention later on, someone who is familiar with the planning process through attending meetings and being consulted for various city projects. Before I bring in the audio of our conversation, I wanted to take a minute to try to ground myself in my location, as my discussion with Kim inspired me to do. The land acknowledgements she presents during Taigon events are from a settler perspective and are about understanding the treaties, the history, and the modern implications of colonialism in Toronto. She asks people to think about their relationship to the land when performing or listening to a land acknowledgement, potentially through their ancestral roots, which is especially important for settlers. As I'm learning more and more about the history of colonization, I am continuing to search for a way to build a new, less extractive relationship with the land. Part of that has come from gardening and learning how plants grow and the connections between the plants themselves, but I have been acutely aware of my location in my apartment on the second floor. It's been several months since my feet or body has touched the ground for more than an hour at a time. I'm afraid to go out to the community garden where the ginormous raspberry plant grows because there's no way to socially distance from other walkers when passing underneath train tracks. So as I've been doing this research and designing this project, I've continued to search as to how to connect with my surroundings beyond recorded or unrecorded history. Inspired by listening to Indigenous scholars and knowledge keepers, I've arrived at listening to what's around me in order to try to figure out my position here. First off, there's the sirens. They're pretty constant, along with the trucks and cars passing by. As I'm inside a lot, my cat is pretty constant as well. The deck garden has been a hot spot for bees, especially bumblebees, which vibrate blossoms in order to get them open early so they can gather the nectar.
The streetcar, which has recently been updated to be sleek, longer, and super uncomfortable, passes by my window. I miss the old streetcars that sounded like they were dying and moved like boats. I'm active in online organizing spaces even though I can't leave the house and have lots of memories of being at rallies downtown, surrounded by huge glass buildings, the sounds of the drum lines echoing all around us. The homelessness memorial, which I attended a few times in the winter, but I'm pretty disconnected from right now, absorbed in worries about the new shelters and COVID and my own safety. A sad day today. Not only has the housing crisis in our city claimed over a thousand homeless lives, we know the conditions that have led to the premature deaths of all of these people are actually I even miss the sounds of transit when the subway would idle at the York station for several minutes. Are walking past underground construction in a crowd of people. Quite different from being in Three Forks, Montana, where I walked on new ice near the headwaters of the Jefferson, Missouri, and Gallatin rivers. and later returned to my parents' home where I showed my mom how the recorder on my phone works. So I'm now recording. Mm. And then to my mom's home province of Nova Scotia where we walked together on the beach on a windy afternoon. I've been lost in sounds. When we first moved to this apartment, I couldn't stand the window being open. It made me really agitated and high strung. I've gotten used to it over time, prairie girl that I am, but on the few mornings we get up before 7am and sit out on the deck, I'm still obsessed with the silences of cars that invites early morning robins, mockingbirds, starlings, ravens, sparrows, and orioles to sing. I think if I've learned anything from listening to these recordings again, it's been that it helps me understand where I am and where I've been. We've insisted on there being things like borders, the silliness of which the migrating flocks of birds and worldwide presence of plants like amaranth and yarrow have pointed out. We've also thought that trucks and cars and industrial noise is just a given, which allows it to fade into the background when it is a thing that can sometimes dramatically impact our lives. I have given up on editing out the background of these recordings. It's simply too loud sometimes, and beyond my own personal comfort, the noise that surrounds me tells me things about the outdoors. 
I can tell the time of day without looking outside by the amount of truck noises. They tend to drive around in the mid-morning and at late at night. While these tangible teachings have been interesting on their own, it's also become clear that listening is something we should be doing. Not because we have something to gain, although gain we will, but because it is part of our duty as part of this world and ecosystem and surroundings. There are things that I can learn here about this place, even though it's heavily industrialized and lacking in what some would call natural elements. I don't have to go to the forest or ocean to learn about my place in the current moment, and it is something we should all be doing all the time. It's also had the effect of engaging my curiosity and learning more about the area, some of which I've discussed for the past couple of episodes. As I've learned, I've reaffirmed my commitment to decolonization, not that convincing me was anyone's role in the first place. And it's here that I want to make sure that I'm not going to start watering down the definition of decolonization by referring back to the eternal Eve Tuck and K. Wayne Yang in their piece, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And here's a long quote. The first half is on page three and the second half is on page seven of their article. Decolonization is not a swappable term for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. Decolonization doesn't have a synonym. Decolonization must involve the repatriation of land simultaneous to the recognition of how land and relations to land have always already been differently understood and enacted. That is, all of the land and not just symbolically. There are two parts to this. There's land back and there's a change in relationships. Decolonization is not something that can be put on a provincially mandated timeline, nor can it be achieved after the Prime Minister makes a statement about the importance of Indigenous people in Canada's future as he simultaneously supports pipelines. Just as settler colonialism is not an event, as settler-identified academic Patrick Wolfe puts it, neither is decolonization. It is a process that happens with and potentially through cultural change, but it becomes a metaphor when that cultural change is the only thing promoted, especially when those changes hold no one accountable. My discussion with Kim was wide-ranging. Taigon Historic Preservation Center, the group she works with, is an indigenous-led group that works to protect sacred sites in High Park. There are 57 burial mounds in the area, as well as the ancient Mohawk Seneca town of Taigon near the Babby Point area. The Taigon website also notes that the bones of a 600-year-old Seneca woman were found three meters from the front door of a house in Babby Point. And here's a quote from their website. This and other evidence proves that the village of Taigon had a much longer occupation by Seneca people, more than just 40 years during the 1600s. Near the area is the Thunderbird Mound in Magwood Park, which borders the east side of the Humber in Babby Point. And this neighborhood, just for the record, is an incredibly wealthy area. It's named after Jacques Babby, who, as a sign recently erected by an anonymous citizen states, was a slave-owning fur trader who opposed Governor Lieutenant Simcoe's efforts to abolish slavery. We talked about her work with the group and how the relationship they have with High Park has been colored by things like the TRC report. Like I said, I've been with the group since 2009, but they've been in existence much longer. Um, and we would go to the High Park Resource Council meetings, which are led by parks, city parks. And uh, basically, we were treated so poorly. We were scorned, um, just like nobody talked to us. Nobody, you know, it was just like, yeah, it was a very confrontational, uneasy space for us. And then after Truth and Reconciliation, everybody's looking at us like, oh, will you come and work with us? Like, just like overnight, the relationship changed. So that was like a really, really interesting. So I think Truth and Reconciliation has really, you know, a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women report and these various like historic moments that have um, kind of 
come to public attention in the past few years has shifted people's um, consciousness. And I think it's a really important opening that we need to really like squeeze into and build on. The group hosts events like Nature Walks and Feasts. Kim does a land acknowledgement for these events, which she read for me. It was incredibly in-depth and has informed a lot of the historical aspects I've discussed so far. As a part of the acknowledgement, she discusses her settler ancestry in order to establish her relationship to the work and the area. These statements are really impactful for people attending these events because many ask her to send hers when attempting to create their own. You know, I feel good about disseminating it as part of a larger conversation and actually how to do land acknowledgements because it's not a static thing. It's an evolving thing that we need to get better at, all of us together. So I just, I consider myself like part of a larger conversation um, and just trying to do my due diligence according to the conversations that I've heard and the critiques that I've heard. And you can't take responsibility for something if you don't identify who you are in relationship to something. (laughs) So, um, you know, just acknowledging that relationship and and where I stand, um, where I stand within it is the beginning of the potential of a political recognition of the problem, of the issue at hand. And to me, the land acknowledgement is like understanding where where we stand now in terms of a decolonization process. So it's not just, okay, well, we're recognizing that these are traditional Indigenous territories. Well, where does that get us? It doesn't, it has no teeth (laughs) politically or in terms of decolonization. Like, what is our intention in doing that? We need to, to, to be accountable within ourselves and our organizations and in that, yeah, decolonization process. I asked how people respond to her land acknowledgement and expressed that I have sometimes found it difficult to engage with some of the history, especially in urban areas. Like in the urban context, when we talk about we're on this land, I think a lot of people have a hard time connecting like what that means to their surroundings, which is why High Park is such an interesting place because it's kind of like it pops out of the urban landscape as like, hi, we're, it's still here. I'm trying to think of how all of the educational work that you're doing and the group is doing can also still work when we're talking about like we're tearing this building down to build another building because mm. it's still on land and it's still like that act is an echo or more than an echo of like what colonialism is. And so to continuously bring that recognition of, of what's happening on that land and like the lack of consent and the lack of Mm. Um, transparency to that process is still embodied in the, in the building processes, even though there's not trees there, you know. Yeah. Um, land is everywhere. You can't not be on land. And I think it is really interesting to stand anywhere and observe what is going on with the land in that spot, whether you're on a piece of concrete. That concrete Um, is a displacement just not of humans but of critters um, of microorganisms it's um, it 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 interacts with the environment in a particular way it absorbs sun in a particular way it 
you know, uh, it organizes humans in a particular way. So everything about any place in an urban setting, I mean, and you could do this anywhere, but we're talking about the urban setting, um, has so much to tell us about our relationship to land. We could just go on and on and on through the history, but also just looking at the present and who is displaced and what kind of dangers that form of development creates for critters, for organisms, for water, for, um, you know, the earth, for humans. Like, it's a set of relationships. That's the way Indigenous knowledge looks at it, is everything is a set of relationships. No one thing is a discrete. So you can also kind of look at how, how a piece of land is being discussed, say, by developers, and whose stories are not included in that discussion. Like, that's a very pared-down discussion, according to a very capitalist, developmental set of priorities, and who is excused from that discussion. And in those planning meetings, because I've been to them for condo developments, because I also do work with the low-income community, um, and we're just like in the junction, and we're surrounded by condo development. So we have been to these meetings to try to introduce other perspectives into development and it's impossible pretty much in those planning meetings. We we have Gore Perks as our counselor and he's supposed to be one of the most progressive counselors and he basically will not he intervenes on all questions coming from the public to the developers and um, the architects and basically doesn't make them have to be accountable to any sort of conversation other than, and basically he's like, the planning process is the way it is. This condo is going through, let's get this meeting over with. And he doesn't want to have a conversation. And I, you know, that bothers me because I think even if that's the case, it's really important to have these conversations and to hold those planners and architects accountable. But Um, I found it absolutely impossible. You're really like having to go in there in a protest mode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I have spoken up in those meetings alongside community members. And the other folks in the meeting, you know, immediately if you bring up anything around Indigenous land or low-income housing, like it just hangs in the air. And then the next question just goes back to, well, is this condo development going to cast shade on my backyard? What is going to be the increase in property, uh, in the increase in traffic flow? And is this building going to be architecturally in line with the historic, i.e. colonial um, aesthetic of the neighborhood. Those are like the three main concerns that people revert to. So even the general public who go to these meetings are not that much interested in a broader conversation, in my experience. This is the crux of this project, too. How to work in this framework when in an urban area. Aside from the myth that there are insignificant numbers of Indigenous people living in urban areas, it is, of course, definitely the opposite. I think a lot of the dismissal of the serious implications of land acknowledgements come from the sense that colonialism is a past event, something that no longer really requires or even can be changed with any form of redress. The impacts of settler colonialism are ongoing, whether they're seen in things such as a national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, or land claims travesties like what's happening at 1492 Landback Lane and on Wet'suwet'en territory. What's more, there are serious implications posited by inquiries and communities alike that can make substantial changes in the lives of Indigenous people 
including those who live in urban areas. So to include a discussion of settler colonialism through land acknowledgements done in urban areas is indeed relevant. I think people know this too because land acknowledgements are done really frequently in cities. It's now about how to really understand what these mean. While it's true that Toronto as a city and mark on the land has irrevocably changed the land, that doesn't then lend an unshakable futurity to the systems that built the city. We can still, and we should, call those into question. I was curious about how the unceded nature of the Toronto Purchase could fit into unsettling the city in people's minds, and potentially the way things are done here. I'm kind of interested in the role it plays in like unveiling all of those, yeah. well, like the capitalist realism attitude yeah. that all of this, these processes tend to have. How does it yeah. do that, you know? Exactly. I mean, and I think it makes me think of something to add to to my land acknowledgement. Like, I can't take up like an hour with it or anything, but uh, <laughs> totally yeah, notion. Yeah, this notion that this notion that you could buy land like that is a foreign notion notion to Indigenous peoples, and it is something. This private property piece is super problematic in terms of like Adam Smith's notion of uh, how one acquires private property. It's sexist, it's ageist, it's ableist. It's like, it's such a narrow conception of land according to how you can make it productive. And only if you can make it productive, can you have the right to own it. And nobody else's inhabitation of the land is recognized as uh, something to be respected unless it's being developed in a way that makes sense to European consciousness. So the whole lens of private property is so colonial. It's just something that can't continue <laughs> to exist in my mind in terms of a decolonized society. It's, it's a huge violence. It causes poverty. Like the way the land is organized according to private property is just like hugely displacing um, all the consciousness around this is my land is creates a very um, entitled ownership mentality, which basically to own something is is not a democratic relationship. It's a relationship of slavery. It's enslaving the land enslaving the plants, everything, if you have that notion that you own something, where does that stop? Like you own people's labor when you pay them, but you're evacuating that person's being in that relationship when you're just saying, I pay you, so you do this. And there's no integrity, there's no autonomy in that relationship. So whether that's you're owning somebody's labor, you're owning the land, the, the consciousness of that relationship is not respectful of, of being's autonomy and integrity. I think the Toronto Purchase and just this notion that, oh, yeah, well, we bought this land and therefore we can control it. We can, it doesn't speak to a relationship of integrity and reciprocity and acknowledgement and um, all of that. In doing, in the city of Toronto having a interest in, and even the, this comes from the Indigenous Affairs Office, having an interest in officializing the their control over these lands or their purchase of these lands through the deal of having paid the Mississauga, that now they 
recognize the Mississauga as their treaty holders. So they're, and the Mississauga are re also reinforcing that relationship to the exclusion of other nations and, you know, kind of looking deeper into what, what, a, what this history actually is. It's not solved. Without wading into criticism of the deal between the Mississaugas and Canada, it's important to talk about the effect that the finalization of this treaty has. Because the land has been officially absorbed into the state and is now confirmed as settler-owned, it can be legitimately sold, subdivided, and developed. This allows investors to more fully participate in Toronto's real estate market. But beyond this too, because I'm not sure developers were ever truly worried about Indigenous land claims due to the Canadian government's support for settler advancement, this chapter in Toronto's history, previously marred by shady map-making and dyed-in-the-wool settler theft, can be closed and a new chapter of reconciliation can be opened. Some of the news coverage I can find from 2010 highlights the lukewarm response to the deal, with articles quoting people saying that there was no way to receive a better monetary offer and that the decision was met with a shrug on the part of some Mississaugas. There is no way to compensate people for the land, cultural, spiritual, or economic loss. But hey, the reserve did plan to use some of the money to pipe in water to serve residents who'd been living without for years. With the land now officially owned by Toronto, a fair deal struck. The idea is that we have free reign to do with it what we like. But like Kim, I think it's necessary to consider what this ownership entails. We hear a lot about planners needing to consider the context in which they're developing by doing community consultation and getting a good feel for the area by visiting the site several times. In some ways, the contextual consideration was built into the official plan as it clarifies that new development should adhere to the local character or not extend beyond certain physical boundaries. And the committee of adjustment meetings will go much more smoothly if you don't have neighborhoods showing up to say they weren't consulted and that the new building will ruin the neighborhood's historic character. Aside from interventions on the part of pesky environmentalists trying to save rare species or the impossibility of building a house on a swamp, I'm curious about the possibility of expanding environmental considerations into development approval processes. We discuss sunlight and shade, wind patterns, and bird-deterring window glazes, but how could we take into account the site's history, quality, and origin of materials used, the ethical labor practices in place, the impact on the soil and microorganisms? In other words, are there other ways to not reiterate the same subjugative relationship with the land in current development processes? There are more specific iterations of this idea. For example, how does development change when it is thought about as happening under agreements like the two-row and District One Spoon? Because the latter was not an agreement made with settlers, and we're at the state we're at in terms of appropriation and fetishization of indigeneity, I'm not eager to say that we could use this specific agreement as a scaffolding on which development processes are redesigned. There are other methods to consider. If we are working to address the truth of land acknowledgements and planning, these shifts in what we consider to be important will serve to improve material conditions of urban life. Development in Toronto is embedded within our economic structure. Development charges represent a substantial portion of the revenues for the city budget, so there are real incentives to things getting built here. Considering the intertwining of capitalistic development and land use once again pushes to the forefront the roots of modern planning. When discussing an introduction to planning course, I referenced a few notable figures whose ideas of city building have become foundational to planning in the West, thinking specifically of Frank Lloyd Wright, Ebenezer Howard, and Le Corbusier. We talk about like planning movements, historical planning movements. There's all these guys, they're always guys and they're always European who have their vision of like the perfect city. And it's oh. never a starting city. It's a brand new thing oh. with flat land or whatever. Right. And there's never like something they're building off of. And I, I think that's 
where a lot of the developers come from, especially in Toronto, mm -hmm. where they're like, you know what, I can't even begin to think through the complexity of that there is another history here. I'm going to mm -hmm. just build my own. Mm -hmm. And it makes so much sense because that's the logic behind all of all of what we're experiencing right now. But it's scary because it is this denial of um, previous people being there and like this ultimate like drive to futurity like this drive to like yeah you know we're here now and maybe yeah. we're going to build this building so that it lasts for like 10 years and then those people take over and they don't think about the disruption that construction brings like actually it's a little bit traumatizing to live in a city of constant construction because yeah. i think our bodies um you know, our bodies absorb the stress of what is actually happening, and it is actually a violence. And even if we're in not opposed to it, we're still physiologically impacted by it. You know, and I guess maybe if we're maybe if we love high rises, that can ameliorate some of the physical impact. But you know, just like all the kicking up of dust and all the noise and just all the interruptions of like flow of our bodies through the space and just I don't know like it's we're living in Toronto as a city of constant construction I just find ugh, exhausting. I think I overstep here assuming that these particular planners represented the planning field in its entirety when this is not the case as people like Peter Marcuse suggest and again check the show notes for some reading suggestions on other planning movements. I'm also pretty focused here on Western planning and easily ignore ancient city planning worldwide, which is heading to the top of my things I want to read more about after I graduate list. Nonetheless, there are real influential ideas undergirding Wright's, Howard's, and Le Corbusier's visions that can be seen in Toronto's planning practice, namely that of reshaping the physical realm in order to reshape society. Critiques which point out simplicity and generalization of context-specific data have stuck, but nonetheless, ideas like crime prevention through environmental design prevail. These three men's ideas also promoted the large-scale reshaping of environments as an extension of modern values. Both the development of the Gardner Expressway and of the new city hall of the 1960s came from this desire to build anew a place when leveling entire blocks. Wealthier neighborhoods are invariably immune from this fate. I, along with many other planning scholars, would argue that revitalization fits this mold as well, an astute example of which is Regent Park. Kim suggested an architecture firm that opposes this approach to development. Um, there are these architects that um, I've kind of read about. They're French, um, and they have a really interesting philosophy to development, which is they do a lot of like renovations. Sometimes like they might be asked to go in and tear down and rebuild and they just, they won't. They'll just go in and find out like they do really extensive community consultations and they find out like really how are the people who are living in that space experiencing that space. And then they just try to adjust the space to enhance their experience of it mm -hmm. as opposed to just tearing down. Like they have this idea that we need to tear down and build something is it's wasteful yes. and everything that gets built is of a lesser quality of the thing that got torn down because of capitalism is always trying to 
cheapen its inputs <laughs> and maximize its profits. So, yeah. you know, and they don't work this way. And they're con- they're concerned with like how much light are people getting, how much fresh air are people getting, how is this building actually functioning as an organism, you know, in a way. And they'll um, and sometimes they'll they'll do very little, and sometimes they'll do a lot. But I think it's just a really interesting approach to development and design. I want to reiterate a point that I made in the first part of this episode. I talked about listening to the world around us not because we'll gain something and because that gain is the point, but that we should listen because it's something we should do. I want to tie this to the idea that we should not be reconfiguring, re-examining, or reimagining planning as a potential route for decolonization because we stand to gain something from it as planners or people living in a space, but because it is something we should do. When we reimagine planning, we can stand in the camp of being responsible to the treaties, the environment, each other, the future, everything. We should not look at this way of development as a new way to get condos built more ethically, because that means we haven't understood the point. This shift in thinking is about revealing that building condos on land in general, and specifically in the way we're building them now, is not a path to the future. I'm going to be very careful about the way I word this next part because it's coming from having been steeped in this topic for almost a year, and I know it can be taken in the absolute wrong way. But as we are thinking about our planning processes in an anti-capitalist manner that supports and upholds indigenous sovereignty, historical presence, and ultimate claim to the land, we should not be making more or less of an effort depending on the number of indigenous people living in the area. This is a responsibility to the relationship that everyone is involved with with the land. Not because they feel some sort of guilt if they don't do it, but because it is what we are mandated to do as inhabitants of the planet. This being said, these shifts cannot happen among settlers without indigenous involvement. This is not an exercise to map out where indigenous people and values fit into a settler context. This is a different system that highlights the different identities and experiences in a place. I believe that decolonization is about these theoretical, mental, and ethical changes, and I believe that decolonization is about the return of land. These are like the unfixable conundrums of a private property system. Basically, in an indigenous worldview, you never take what you don't need. Capitalism is in the business of creating needs that we don't actually have. You know, you sell all your labor and then you shop basically as therapy, as some way to, you know, um, comfort yourself for your alienation. You want to get the latest, newest thing. Capitalism has to keep going, so it has to keep producing. I mean, if we lived in a society where we just produced what we need, we produced it well so it didn't break, we wouldn't have to work. We just, everything would be just about redistributing, you know, and making sure our communities that should be organized around our most vulnerable people so that we, we center the children, the elderly, you know, any any kind of like, you know, those are the folks that should be in the middle of our communities. And then we just produce what we need yeah. in order to survive as communities, not this. You have to wake up every day in a capitalist society. If you're not a plutocrat, if you're not sitting on a pile of wealth and you're not in that ilk, the rest of us, we have to get up every day and sell our labor another day in order to have the right to exist at all or have the capacity to exist. It's not guaranteed to us. You know, either we work or we perish. So that's not how the planet, <laughs> that shouldn't be our relationship to life.
I designed this land acknowledgement to look at the structural elements of settler colonialism and to consider how those play a part in locating myself. As someone who lives on the stolen territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, Anishinaabek, Métis, and current treaty holders, the Mississauga of the New Credit, decolonization is a current throughout all of my work. The Dish with One Spoon Wampum, an agreement between the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee, is a guiding principle for how I live on this land. Even though this was not an agreement that settlers were originally a part of, as residents, settlers have a responsibility to know and enact the values of the agreement in their lives. The two-row wampum is an agreement made between the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee. It is therefore also important for any inhabitant. This wampum established that two cultures could coexist peacefully without interfering in each other's affairs. The futures that these wampums sought to secure have not been upheld, either through extractive industry which threatens and destroys indigenous communities alongside large swaths of forests, oceans, prairies, lakes, and river systems, as key elements in the colonization and establishment of the land known as Canada, settlers' transgressions of these agreements have led to a world of extreme disparities in wealth, racism, femicide, and cultural loss for Indigenous people. The horrors of the residential school systems and 60s scoop continue to surface as some survivors gain access to community support to help them through publicly discussing the abuse they endured. Indigenous land loss was persistent throughout the 1700s and skyrocketed in the late 1800s until the current situation, where there is now slightly more than 0.2% of the land in the area known as Canada, termed as reserve land. This was not a mistake. This is the intent of settler colonialism. To not only fracture and extract, but to replace. Despite this, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people remain here and thrive. The vast majority of what I have read and listened to for this project was the work of Indigenous scholars, officials, and activists. The number of Indigenous people in academia is especially growing, but there remains work to be done, especially on the front of combating institutional racism and shoddy land claims processes. Land acknowledgements are about locating ourselves in the present and understanding the past, and that the events of the past have determined and continue to influence what happens now, through institutional means like policing, healthcare, resource and forestry management, universities, the economy, and planning. As such, it may not be that planning as a field can do much on the decolonization front. Land acknowledgements have the power to undo the erasure and legitimacy of the Canadian state promoted by planning. So, as planners make these statements, they can make some changes in their planning capacity to mitigate suffering incurred under the colonial elements of their field, but they must also bring these understandings outside of their work if they plan to participate in decolonization efforts. Learning the things you need to know for writing a land acknowledgement takes time, but it changes the way you think about where you're at. There is immense value in understanding this history because it benefits everyone involved as treaty people. My own ancestors played a role as settlers in Nova Scotia. On one side of my family, I am able to trace my ancestors back to their arrival at Digby, along the coast of the Bay of Fundy. Although things are murky in terms of the where and when, they were most likely homesteading settlers who have lived in the area at least since the 1700s. Other relatives arrived from England more recently, probably in the 1900s. On the other side, my great-grandfather arrived from Norway in the late 19th century from the island of Veroy, with another great-great-grandmother coming over from Sweden in the 1800s. This side of my family settled in western Minnesota and parts of North Dakota, attracted by the offer of farmland. I don't know what their lives exactly entailed. Some relatives have put together a history that I'll read one day. 
but I do know that my ancestors' passage was eased by the mindsets that pushed for white supremacy, settler colonialism, and the replacement of at least the Chippewas of the Mississippi through U.S. Session Number 357 and Mi'kmaq and Nations of the Wabanaki Confederacy through the Peace and Friendship Treaty. I directly benefited from their settlement of those lands and have continued to benefit from systems that are built on disadvantaging indigenous people and people of color. I have moved a lot in my lifetime, too, having lived on the land of the Cheyenne, Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, Métis, Oshetishakohan, Absoluka, or Crow, Salish Kootenai, Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Huron-Windat, and Mississaugas. These histories stretch into the past far beyond settler imaginations and far into the future. It's my intention to learn the treaties of each location I travel to in the future and to pull this mindset through all of my work, whether it's in the planning field or not. I have put a lot of resources in the episode notes for each of these episodes. This project was designed to implore settlers to think more deeply about their role as someone living in the area referred to as Canada. So while this was written from a settler perspective, it's my hope that everyone can feel welcome here and find value in some of the things I've covered. As we are each other's accomplices, we find new paths to liberation. I just want to do a brief thank you section because I've received a lot of love and support throughout this project. Firstly, thank you to my supervisor and advisor, Tracy Workington, as well as my second reader, Deborah McGregor, who have pushed me to think about different ways to disseminate this project so that it goes beyond the academic sphere and into the real world. Thank you to Louisa Sotomayor, who let me call her late at night on a Sunday to talk about anxiety and asking for breaks. Justin Poder, who definitely deserves praise and gratitude for not only hiring me onto such a cool mapping project, but for also offering advice and feedback when I was getting really worried near the end and also Sarah Flicker, who steered me in the right direction very early on. Thank you to all the lovely people who offered their time to be interviewed by me. All of your patience surrounding technology and rescheduling and understanding the questions underneath all my rambling made this project happen. My friends Leia, Tibbles, and Evelyn have been very supportive and kind about meeting up, getting us groceries <laughs> when we were advised to not go outside, and watching What a Girl Wants, Parallax View, and Holy Mountain with us over video call. Also, Zasha, Evan, Kate, Ian, Jasmine, Sparks, Allison, and Tasha in Montana for staying in touch and offering all kinds of love. My family have also been my cheerleaders and have listened to me several hours a week despite our variable physical distance. And finally, to my fiancé Caligula, without whom I would not receive tea in bed, hugs every half an hour, and endless feedback and inspiration for this project. I also want to send my sincere gratitude to all the people whose work I have mentioned for your thoughts and insights. This project was built off of generations of work and thought. Thank you.